Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been looking together at what Christians believe. We've been using the Apostles' Creed as our guide to doing that. And this morning, we're going to talk about the line in the Creed that says that we believe in the communion of saints. So I'm going to read uh, from Romans 12, verses 9 through 21 for us. Uh, it's printed in your order of worship. You can follow along there uh, or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang together and asked that you would come with your peace, with your invitation, and that you would bind us together in holy love. And so what we ask now as we think and talk about this word that we have just read together is that they, we would experience in truth what we just sang. That as we talk about these words, which are solely about genuine love for one another, that you would bind us together in love, that you would remind us all of the time, all of the, this, these moments together, first, of how much you have loved us. And let that be the source of our ability to be able to love others. Father, meet us and remind us of the grace and love of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, maybe some of you know the Avet Brothers song, Murder in the City. Uh, it is a song that's written from the perspective of a guy uh, giving instructions to the rest of his family in case he meets an untimely end. And this song starts with a really great opening couplet. It says, if I get murdered in the city, don't go revenging in my name. Always good advice, I think. Uh, it also is very reflective of this passage that we just read together, but that is not why I'm bringing it up. I'm bringing it up because as unlikely as it might seem from those first couple lines, the song ends up being a beautiful meditation on family. I have an older brother, and there are some lines in this song where the writer um, wonders which of the brothers their parents loved the most. <laughs> and 
and then he wonders what his dad would say in response to that. They, they get me every time. Uh, but the emotional weight of the song falls on the last line. It is the last thing that this writer wants his family to know after he is gone. He says, always remember that there was nothing worth sharing like the love that let us share our name. Always remember that there was nothing worth sharing like the love that let us share our name. There is something about family. There is something about the people that we are connected to outside of our affinities, the people that we're connected to outside of our common interests, about the people that we are connected to uh, outside of the mutual benefit that we could give each other. There is something deeply, deeply powerful about being connected to people by the bond of family, by our name. And that bond is part of what makes family so powerful and so formative in our lives. And that bond is also what makes family so incredibly beautiful at times and so incredibly painful at times. And it is that bond of family that we're talking about when with the creed we affirm that we believe in the communion of saints. Everyone who professes faith in Jesus shares the family name. We have been baptized into it, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so hopefully it doesn't come as a surprise to any of us that when the Apostle Paul talks to his friends about the nature of that family, when he, when he summarizes the essence of the bond that that family shares, he begins in verses 9 and 10 by saying, let your love be genuine. Love each other with family affection, brotherly, sisterly affection. Paul says that to the church because the love that lets us share our name also calls us to love each other. So last week we talked about that line in the creed that affirms that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And if you were here, you might remember that we talked about the church in terms of, I think, one of the most arresting images that the Apostle Paul uses to talk about the church. We talked about the church as the household of God. Right? Across every age and among every people, the church is the home, the house that has been built for God's people. It becomes, in Paul's language, even the dwelling place of God. And when we say that we believe in the communion of saints, what we're doing is walking through the front door of that house and taking a look inside the home. Right? There's a building for sure, there's a house, but what is life like inside? How do you act in that home? What is the family like? Those questions are what the communion of saints is all about. The, the word uh, communion is the old English word for another word that we sometimes use in English, fellowship. It's about the common life that we share, the common life of God's people. And here's what Paul is trying to make really, really clear to his friends in Rome and to us. And that is the common life of God's people should be marked by love. But Paul goes even further than that. He pushes it further when he tells the church to love with affection, with family 
affection. And in that way that he's making it clear that the kind of love he's talking about is not the kind of love that makes us want to marry someone because we're taken with them. It's not the kind of love that wants to hang out with somebody else because we share all kinds of common interests with them. I mean, those loves are fantastic. They're great. If they happen in the household of God, great. But that's not the love that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a different kind of love. The word affection refers to the kind of love that we have, not for the people that we choose to be in our lives, but for the people who just are in our lives, like family, those with whom we share a name. By the way, this is one of the reasons that the historic church has, from a very early, early time, fostered this practice of greeting one another, passing the peace, like we'll do later in the service, like we do every week. Just last week, Paul, our director of worship, was telling me that the early church fostered this practice of greeting one another because in, in the highly stratified, you know, economically, class-wise, in, in, the, in the highly stratified world of the first century, the church functioned as a beautiful, striking oasis and refuge. Normally, you would only greet people who were in your class, in your strata, but in the church, the high and the low and the rich and the poor and the slave and the free, people from every race and nationality, they walked together, they ate together, they laughed together, they sang together, they prayed together, they cried together, they served together, and the greeting or the peace was a physical token of that beauty. It was a way for everyone to stop and say, look at this. This is what the cross of Jesus does. It lets us share a name. And it lets us love like family. And church, I just want to make it clear that this kind of love is the kind of love that is willing to give more than it gets. It is the kind of love that is happy to take the hit for the benefit of the other. It's the kind of love that is not trying to impress anyone. It's the kind of love that lays on the floor behind, beside the kid who had the nightmare. It's the kind of love that feeds a mom or a dad because they are no longer able to feed themselves. It is the kind of love that changes diapers and makes the food and stays up late and cleans up the mess again. That's the kind of love that Paul is talking about. And it is the kind of love that is almost always concrete and visible and observable. And that's what this passage from Romans is all about. It's, just, it's like this beautiful cascade of what love actually looks like in practice among God's people. He starts by saying, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I think about what does that mean among the people of God? It's sometimes helpful to start in thinking maybe about the contrast to that. I mean, there's lots of places where we could go. Say you go to the grocery store and you strike up, you know, just a talking relationship with the cashier. You don't know her last name. You don't know anything about her. She doesn't know anything about you. And one day you're checking out and the cashier says to you, you know what, I know your boyfriend. <laughs> and he's no good. <laughs> And you can do way, way better than him. 
But what would you say to the cashier? I mean, you could say, who in the world are you? (laughs) I came here to buy groceries. You can leave my boyfriend out of it. We don't have to talk about him over the cucumbers. And you know what? That would be a perfectly normal and acceptable response for a life that is cultivated around the grocery store. But what about a life cultivated around the name of Jesus that we share? What does it look like in the household of God? Well, it looks like occasionally being willing to kindly and graciously initiate conversations we might not do in other places, conversations that might start by saying, I think you can do better than him. Conversations that might start by saying, if you keep doing this thing, I think it's going to lead you to a harmful place, and I do not want you to be hurt. Conversations that begin by saying, look, this thing that you keep doing to me, it is pushing me away. It hurts me. Can we talk about it? Part of being in the communion of saints is being willing to graciously and kindly initiate conversations like those, and just as importantly, to be on the receiving end of them and not say, who in the world are you? Because this is how family loves one another. We cling to good for each other. That is what genuine love looks like. And that list just goes on and on. Outdo one another, Paul says, in showing honor, be fervent in service. And then there's that beautiful triad, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I love that little triad because it's the stuff of real life. Here we are, messed up, hurting people, living in a profoundly broken world. And even in that trouble, we can rejoice together in the hope that God is remaking us, that he is remaking the whole world. It doesn't take the pain or the trouble away. Sometimes it doesn't even lessen it, but it does remind us that we are not alone. We are in this communion of saints. We are cultivating a life together with a family that is formed around hope. We are cultivating life together with a family that is working on the virtue of patience and the life of prayer together. And we know we're not alone. Of course, that isn't all that families do for one another. When when people are hurting, when they're in need, Families follow along behind those people with their, not only prayers, but their resources. Which is to say, we put our our money where our mouth is. Or as Paul says in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Making sure that people are not alone in their trouble or their need is the first part. And then caring for that need as best as we possibly can is the second part. Helping with bills or rent, rent in a hard month, helping with tuition or unexpected expenses or medical bills or clothes or furniture, counseling costs. And I want you all to know, you, church, you, this is things that we have done. These are not just pulled out of the air. These are things that this family has done for one another. We do this kind of thing for one another all the time through our deacons, through your generosity and giving to the deacons fund and in all kinds of other ways too. 
So I hope when you hear this that as you're able, that you will continue to contribute to the needs of the saints, to the deacons fund. And I hope, just as importantly, that as you need it, you'll ask for help. You know, the deacons' emails on page 19, you, you can email them. You can talk to one of the pastors because that is family love. And I want to tell you that behind every one of those instances of really profound, tangible, concrete care are sisters and brothers, members of your family who know without a doubt that they are not alone, that they live in hope and they pray in hope and they rejoice in hope. So Paul goes on in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, associate with the lowly, live in harmony with one another. This is what life in the household of God is like. And if we say the creed and we mean it, then this is the kind of life that we agree to live together when we say that we believe in the communion of saints. In just a few minutes, a bunch of people are going to join the church. They're going to become members today. And they're going to take a, a bunch of vows. And the fifth vow is this beautiful vow um, to live this kind of life for each other. The fifth vow asks, do you promise to support the worship and work of this church with your time, with your energy, with your resources to the best of your ability? They're going to make that vow to you, to us, together, to one another. And I ask that when you hear that vow, you would, you would ask God to help your own loyalty to it be confirmed. I know that this is not easy. <laughs> I know that this is not a simple thing to do. There's lots and lots of reasons why it is hard to keep those promises that we make to one another. For one thing, we live deeply customizable lives in a deeply customizable age. It is becoming increasingly easy to form our lives in ways that serve to maximize our pleasure, and that is increasingly being cultivated in isolation from other people. Lots of our technology pushes us in this direction. Think about, you know, riding the L. Think about sitting in a restaurant. Really think about anywhere. So many of us are heads down, staring into the glow, a million miles from the human beings that are all around us. And then we get home <laughs> in our living rooms, you know? Our living rooms, to borrow a phrase from the television critic for the LA Times, our, our living rooms are like digital pie-eating contests. And all of this screams together that if you like, if you want it, you can become completely absorbed in a world of your own making. Just say it, and it happens. And I hope it's obvious. I need to hear this, church, again and again, and maybe you do too. I hope it's obvious in that world there is no room for family. There is no room to love one another sincerely. There is no one to outdo in showing honor. 
there is no one left to make hospitable space for. And so I need to hear this too, and maybe you do too, because it is also just as clear that the gospel, this thing that we believe, that we profess, that we order our whole life around together, it speaks profoundly into that kind of isolation. It speaks powerfully into that kind of isolation. I mean, the Word became flesh and lived with us. Pursuit is at the heart of the gospel, not isolation. Pursuit is at the heart of what we believe. Jesus tells stories about fathers running after lost sons and and widows who sweep the whole house looking for a coin and shepherds who go out into the night looking for errant sheep. And he tells these stories in part to tell us again and again and again that God has and always will pursue people like us. And to believe that we are the object of that pursuit, to believe it in a way that sinks into who we are, is to know that we have everything that we need to love and pursue others. Everything, all the resources come from him. And this kind of living, this kind of loving is not only for us. It's not only for the family. As Paul puts it in verse 21, This is the kind of living and loving that works to overcome evil with good. Here's why I think that works. There's a house for God's people. There is a way to live in it. It is called genuine love. And you know how this is in your own neighborhood. There's probably a house or two in your own neighborhood. You look at it and there's something about it. It's not because it's big or because the architecture is particularly notable. There is something about it that is warm and gracious and inviting. And you think to yourself, I'd love to meet who lives there. (laughs) And that's what Paul wants the household of God to look like to the watching world. Which is why he spreads out this way of living and loving in the world, especially to those who are intent on hurting us that is characterized with these incredibly winsome words, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Of course, Paul takes that teaching from Jesus, which we heard about in the gospel lesson this morning. Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave all of that up to God. Paul is telling the church that the way that we love each other leads directly into the way that we love the world around us, especially the ones who might seek to do us harm. You don't engage in some kind of war with those folks, some kind of culture war, some kind of shouting match with those folks. Instead, Paul says, you you stage an onslaught of love. You mount an offensive of grace. If, if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Paul says, if you do this, it'll be like heaping burning coals on their head, which I know sounds like a strange thing to say. Paul's quoting directly from the book of Proverbs there, and scholars of, of the book of Proverbs and Paul both don't know exactly what's happening in this image, but one thing is clear, that it's not some backdoor retaliation or revenge plan (laughs) that would go against everything Paul is saying go against everything that Jesus teaches 
I think it's probably something else, an image intended to invoke the inevitable result of being loved when you in, are in the midst of trying to hate. The image of being cared for while you're trying to destroy. It's shocking. It's eye-opening. It's surprising to be loved while you're acting like an enemy. And it's not like we don't know what that's like. It's not like we don't know what it's like to be running far away and to be pursued by love, burning white hot. <laughs> it's surprising, shocking, eye-opening. And, you know, to be on the receiving end of that, to, to be an enemy who begins to be surprised by grace and love, maybe being loved like that is enough to open your eyes and, and to make you look for something new and something better. Maybe instead of throwing rocks at the house, you decide to ring the doorbell and meet the family. And that church is how genuine, sincere love in the communion of saints for both one another and for the world around us works in very concrete, observable ways to overcome evil with good. This is the life that we have been called to. It's the life that we have been strengthened to live by the pursuing grace of Jesus. It is the life we affirm when we say that we believe in the communion of saints. Let me pray for us. Father, make us students of love. First of your great, pursuing, surprising love for people like us, for people like me. Help us to know that you have loved us in that way, in a way that is transformative in who we are, deep in our bodies and hearts. Father, do that so that we can then become students of how to love, <laughs> how to love each other, how to love the broken world around us. Father, we ask that you would do this for our own healing, for our own restoration, for our own good, and for the healing and restoration and good of your big, beautiful world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.